Hosea chapter 9, and I'm going to read all of it. So let's hear the word of God. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exalt not like the peoples. For you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord. But Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourners' bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them, Memphis shall bury them, nettles shall possess their precious things of silver, thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come, the days of recompense have come, Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the Spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God, yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways, and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins." Like grapes in the wilderness I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Our Father, we pray for grace tonight as we look at these verses. We pray that 
the Holy Spirit will help us as we consider these words said and recorded so many years ago, but Lord, have relevancy even for this age in some way. We pray for understanding then, for right understanding. We pray we won't go off, Mark. Give us grace for this, please. May we learn from Scripture this evening. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. This is not confessions of a pastor, but I do remember gate crashing a party back in my hometown. A few of us had heard, I was about 16, then I wasn't like, you know, 50. <laughs> it wasn't last time I was home, but I remember gate crashing a party back in Limavati. Uh, a few of us had heard there was someone having a house party. Uh, to celebrate their birthday and so we a few of us lads decided to to invite ourselves along to it we knew the girl from school and so we presumed there would be a, a good chance of us getting into it so when we arrived uh, we discovered half the town it seemed had had the same idea uh, taxis were arriving to drop people off at the address in the front garden there were uh, groups of lads uh, loitering around I remember distinctly seeing one or two lads using the goldfish pond at the front as a toilet. Uh, when, when we got inside the house, we saw the girl's parents were there. Uh, Mum was in the kitchen consoling her daughter over how many strangers had turned up at her birthday party. Her dad was like the policeman, sort of prowling the hallway, watching who was where and what they were doing in his house. Uh, it was definitely becoming more and more noisy as more and more people arrived, more and more boisterous. Music was blaring out of the stereo system in the front room. Uh, people were generally, I think, having a good time until someone broke the glass door off the front of the music system. And I still see the dad marching into the room over to the music system and turning off the music and shouting, that's it, party's over, everyone get out now. And then he began to herd us all out the front door, making sure we got off his property. That's how this chapter opens. The people of Israel are in the full flow of a party uh, celebrating an abundant harvest. It's a party, but instead of giving thanks and giving glory to the Lord, we see familiar language used yet again here. This is actually the last time we'll come across this sort of language. You have played the whore forsaking your God. Right from the very first chapter, the first few verses, that was a word that was used. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Their party most likely would have been some sort of drunken orgy performed at these places where, where God, the Lord, had provided for them. The threshing floors, the vine vats. But what they were doing in their partying, what they were doing in their celebrations was all done in the name of Baal as the surrounding nations would have done it. And so in marches Hosea, up 
to the music system, as it were, turns it off and shouts those opening words. Verse 1, rejoice not, O Israel, exalt not like the peoples. ESV makes it sound a bit woody, doesn't it? NIV is better. Do not rejoice, O Israel. Do not be jubilant like the other nations. And then he basically tells them to get off the property. Verse 3, they shall not remain in the land of the Lord. This is significant for Hosea to say, you may no longer stay here in the Lord's land, as the New Living Translation puts it. Basically, what this chapter shows us is something of a reversal of everything that God had promised Israel. A land and descendants as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the beach. He's reversing it because of their consistent wickedness. There are two main sections just to tonight's chapter. I'm trying to not get stuck in the details of every single verse. I'm trying to go over it at like 10,000 feet to look down and see things that stand out. So there are two main points of this chapter of God's judgment on his old covenant people of Israel. The first section covers verses 1 to 9. It refers mainly to their land. If you think of the, the history of the land that God had given them, remember this was the Lord's land. This was his land on which he allowed them to stay. They were allowed to stay if they kept the covenant. This was their promised land, their home. This was a place where they now belonged, a, a place of community, a, a place of security and prosperity. This was for them a place of rest if they obeyed God's law. In effect, the promised land was a picture of where the Lord was taking all his people. If you think of the great story from the Garden of Genesis through to the city in Revelation, both bookends, as it were, are where people, humanity, are with God. They're with him in a place of safety and uh, prosperity of sorts and communion together with the Lord. You think of the disruption in Genesis 3, uh, the impact that man's rebellion had had on that home of humanity. You think of the exile that Adam and Eve experienced as they're separated from God, and you see in Genesis 3:24 how God drove them out of that place. Then we came through to Abraham. Abraham is called to faith, and he is promised a land. He's told, I will give you this land as far as you can see. He's promised that in Genesis 12, verse 7. And of course, Abraham believed. And uh, it was credited to him as, as righteousness. Then eventually we come through to Moses. God's people have gone down into Egypt. And now God sends Moses to bring them out of Egypt, out of slavery, through the Red Sea, and then after 40 years of wandering through the wilderness because of their rebellion, Joshua finally leads them into the promised land where they take the land and they settle down in the land. But if they disobeyed the Lord, if they rebelled against their creator and their redeemer, if they forgot the Lord who had brought them out of Egypt and brought them out of slavery, then 
as Deuteronomy 28 tells us so vividly, God would discipline them. God would punish them. There would be curses for their disobedience. It is worth reading Deuteronomy 28 at some time at home. It's a long chapter, but it really does give context to everything we look at in Hosea. Because what we read in Hosea, God had told them about beforehand. Yes, we see a lot of wickedness, we see a lot of idolatry, but actually we also see a lot of God's faithfulness. He only does what He said He would do. So it's worth reading that chapter, Deuteronomy 28. But you see that discipline of God's people further through the book of Judges. Uh, when you consider those early chapters when the Israelites don't or they can't get rid of the people from the land, and so they allow the pagans of the land to stay on the land, and over time then they compromise with the people of the land. You come from those early chapters all the way through to the closing chapters, and what happened at Gibeah, which Hosea refers to here in verse 9, you read of that in Judges 19 and onwards. But the general theme of how Judges ends remains the same in Hosea's day, that everyone does whatever they feel like doing. In other words, no one is listening to what God has said, but it's all relative. Each person thinks their own rightness and their own wrongness. That seems to still be the case here in verse 17. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. And in verse 7, Hosea describes what the people think of the prophets. God is lovingly sending prophets to his people to warn them and to encourage them to come back to him. And yet, verse 7, New Living Translation, because of your great sin and hostility, you say the prophets are crazy. And the inspired men are fools. The prophet is a watchman over Israel for my God, yet traps are led for him wherever he goes. He faces hostility even in the house of God. That's what they think of the people that God had sent to, to warn them of what was coming, to encourage them to come back to God and to experience times of blessing again. They just think they're mad. So what is the response of God to these things? Well, we're told that this will be their last festival. This will be their last party because God is driving them out of the land. Verse 3, they shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. I don't believe Hosea is meaning the geo geographical Egypt that God will send them to, but he's talking of slavery. God is going to send his people back into slavery again where they will, will where they, they're going to experience slavery again as they did back in Egypt. But this time their slavery will be in exile there in Assyria on whatever food they have then as slaves then in Assyria, it will not be used, verse 4, for parties or for celebrations or for sacrifices, but simply just to stay alive. 
So this is what the Lord will do unless Israel repents, unless Israel comes home to her husband, her loving husband. But they will face expulsion from their homeland. They will face slavery again. They'll face death. They'll face the loss of everything they had that was precious to them in verse 6. Unless they humble themselves and come back to the Lord who loves them and obey him. And yet look at what they're doing. There they are rejoicing. There they are partying. And Hosea, the killjoy, has to walk into the middle of it and announce all of this. I want us to think about Hosea for a moment. Here's someone who, in a sense, is ruining the party, ruining their fun as he announces all of this impending doom on them. When actually, if he were to have followed some of the views of today, then out of love for his fellow Israelites, he might have joined them in their celebrations. Maybe out of fear, out of concern of appearing judgmental of them, he might have partied along with them, hoping, you know, to persuade them in some way, maybe. I mean, they already think he's a fool. They already think he's crazy, verse 7. So why not surprise them with love? Why not go with them to their pagan party, maybe even take along a contribution for their party? Hosea, why do you have to be such a killjoy? Why do you have to be so judgmental all the time? Well, because judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Was it unloving? Was it judgmental to get on like this, to stop their celebrations and describe such awful consequences if, say, the building was on fire? Would it? Of course not. Well, the building is on fire. The last day is nearer than ever before. And just as God judged the world before with the flood, and the people then didn't accept what Noah preached to them of the opportunity for salvation if they repented and got onto the ark, if they believed the word of God and went to the place of refuge, just as they didn't believe him then, well, so God will again judge the world. And our role, like Noah's, like Hosea's, is to lovingly warn our world. 2 Peter 3 tells us scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Verse 9 tells us, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. May God embolden us then to be, to be something of an Hosea in our day. To walk that difficult path in this age where as salt and light in this age, 
but we engage with our colleagues, our friends, our family, some of whom may well be living evidently immoral lives, but we engage with them in such a way that we neither revile them nor do we affirm them in their immorality. But we speak the truth and we surprise them by living according to that truth ourselves. And may the Lord use our loving words of warning, our loving words of invitation to persuade, to convict, to draw some from their sin to the Savior, Jesus Christ. The second area of judgment is in verses 10 to 17. Again, I'm just covering this broadly. Uh, the first section related to the land of Israel. This next section relates to the fruit of their womb, their children, both as their progeny and as the fruit of their continuity as a people. You can imagine a broken-hearted husband. There he is reminiscing on the past of how things once had been between him and his estranged life, uh, wife when they first met. Maybe there's a photo album that he flicks through and he sees pictures that evoke in him mixed feelings of, of happiness as he remembers those lovely times, but also feelings of great sadness as he reflects on where they are now. Well, here in verse 10, this verse gives us another glimpse at the tender-heartedness of God. God, as it were, is flicking through the photo album. He's reflecting on how he first met, as it were, his wife. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your father's. The language that he uses there is meant to convey a joy in that context, a delight, grapes in the wilderness. It gives a sense of refreshment, a, a, a picture of, of pleasure. The first fruit in its first season gives the sense of excitement in wondering what will become of this fig tree. There's hope there. There's, there's emotion and, and, and love and excitement in, this, in the beginnings of this relationship. That would have taken us back to Mount Sinai, back to Exodus 24 when they received the, the covenant down from the Lord from the top of Mount Sinai. And as we saw on Tuesday night, the blood is sprinkled on the people and so forth. And they covenant themselves to the Lord. They say, we are God's people and everything that he has told us to do, we will do. There's a wonderful beginning like marriage vows at the ceremony, you know. Do you promise to take so-and-so? Yes, I do. That's what they were doing in a sense there at Mount Sinai. And the Lord looks back at that with joy, with delight. But, that's the next word, but. Then they came to Baal Peor. There are three place names mentioned in this passage. Did you notice them as we read them through? I could have preached a three-pointed sermon on them. Gibeah, verse 9. Uh, that's the story of the Levite's concubine and all of that. Gibeah, where, that, where what happened seemed to lead from one act of madness to another. 
another passage or two to read on your own. But great depravity, great selfishness, great madness of people who have somehow disconnected from the Lord. And so there they live in just craziness. Then Balpeor, verse 10, that takes us to Numbers chapter 25. This was when the prophet Balaam had been recruited by Balak, king of Moab, to curse the Israelites. But the Lord meets with Balaam along the way and says, you can only say what I want you to say, and therefore only Balaam, can, all he can do is bless the people of Israel. But it seems that as he's leaving, he gives Balak the idea of sending Moabite women into Israel's camp to lead the people astray. He did it for money. If you read on in other places, you put the pieces together. Balaam just, Balaam said what you wanted him to say for money. And so uh, he encouraged Balak to uh, ruin the people of Israel by appealing to the depravity of their heart. And you read in Numbers 25, verse 1, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So, this is important wording, so Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. You see, Israel was already yoked to the Lord. He was their husband, but she ran off. This is what's acted out between Hosea and Gomer. She ran off with another man, as it were, with Baal of Peor. In the other places, Gilgal, verse 15, where we're told the Lord began to hate them. These are strong words. This is where Saul was anointed as Israel's king, you read of in 1 Samuel 11. You remember, Israel didn't want God to be their king. Israel had rejected God as their king, 1 Samuel 8 verse 7. They wanted to be like all the other nations around them. It seems that that is where it all began, with them rejecting God and instead choosing to be like all the nations around them and in their idolatry. So these places, these places evoked painful memories to God, who we're told in verse 9 still remembered their iniquities. And so because of their unfaithfulness, how will God discipline them? Remember the Lord had said, I'll give you this land, this land is yours forever, but he's now going to kick them out of it. He had told Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, your descendants, your children will be as many as the stars of the sky. You can't number them. I'm going to give you as many children as the sand on the sea. You just can't, the sand on the beach. You just cannot number them. Yet now how will God discipline them? God will remove their children from them. These are sober verses. Verse 11 onwards, again and again. This is, just before we say that, this is the same God of the New Testament, by the way. The same God who said, let the little children come unto me. And do not hinder them, for 
such as such is the kingdom of God. He says, I'm going to take your glory from you, your children from you. Verse 11, no birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Verse 12, even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Verse 13, Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter or out to the slayer. He's describing Assyria there, who had a terrible reputation for slaughtering men, women, and children. Verse 14, give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Verse 16, Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit, even though they give birth. I will put their beloved children to death. It's awful. It's terrible. It has come to this point. This is what God has now been brought to. It's what he said he would do back in Deuteronomy 28. That if they loved their God, if they loved their Redeemer who had rescued them from slavery... If they were careful to keep all his commandments, verse 11, the Lord will make you abound in prosperity, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your livestock, and in the fruit of your ground, within the land that the Lord swore to give your, to your fathers to give you. But now we have a complete reversal. Now their womb will dry up. They'll be barren. And children that have been born to them will die. Now he will drive his unfaithful wife out of the promised land until she comes to her senses and returns to him with repentance and love. These are serious. These are such sober friends, uh, things, friends, for us to consider. And thankfully, it's not the end of the story for Israel, not at all. We'll come back to this next time. But I do want us to close this evening considering our Savior, the Lord Jesus. I think we need to conclude with him. We must conclude with him. But to appreciate him, we must conclude with the climax of emotion that's expressed here by God in verse 15. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. Those are very emotive words, aren't they? Words of hatred, words of rejecting, no longer loving. But they help to give us some perspective on what was happening at another place, a place there where we remember, and as we remember that place, our thoughts are evoked, our feelings are stirred. I'm thinking of Calvary. I'm thinking where at Calvary these emotives were worked out through Christ's suffering and his death. You see, in a sense, every evil of ours was there at Calvary. For there, Jesus, the Son of God, was cursed for all our sin. 
The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. It's there at Calvary that all the curses promised us for our sin were poured out on Jesus Christ. And he faced the Father's anger. He faced the Father's hatred of our sin. The Father's exile of us for our sin in our place. There at Calvary, Jesus was exiled from God's presence because he bore the guilt, the wickedness, the whoredom of all our sin. The Father treated his Son as though he had committed all our sin. But it was our sin. It was all, all our evil, all our idolatry, all our unfaithfulness, all our depravity that the beloved Son of God took responsibility for, for all our iniquities, and He died in our place. The wages of sin is death. That is what we deserve. That is what we should carry. That's what we should get for our sin. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, because of Jesus and because of Calvary, we now have a true home to look forward to, a home to which we shall never be evicted from. We shall never be driven out of heaven because of Calvary. But we've been rescued from our slavery, our slavery to sin and our slavery to death, and now we have a, a promised land to press onward to as the people of old had. For now we, we live as sojourners in this life, this age. We, we live as foreigners living in a strange place. This place, however much God has blessed us here, is not our home. But we're called now to live as sojourners, as, as holy pilgrims as we make our way to what God has promised us. And when we get there, the party never ends, if I can conclude on that as I opened. No one ever stops the celebrations because forever and ever and ever, God's people shall be in the presence of their Savior and we shall forever surround his throne and celebrate and praise him and sing to him as loud as, as best as we're able. So may God help us press on in holiness, obeying God's word with this joy in our hearts that one day we shall be with our Savior and free from all our sin and shame. Amen. Let's pray for a moment. God of heaven, thank you for reminding us, Lord, of, of who you are tonight. You are truly the loving God, truly the loving husband of his people. Lord, you are truly the one who sits and extends his arms and beckons his people to come to him. Truly you are, Lord. 
and yet you're also a God who hates our sin, a God who is grieved deeply over our sin. We thank you that we have a Savior, Lord. Who could stand in your presence if there were not one to stand between us? Thank you for Jesus, our Savior. Thank you for the one true mediator between you and us. Help us then to follow him, to love him, to stop doubting him, to stop in our minds questioning him, but to accept fully his love for us without suspicion and to give ourselves entirely to him. Help us to do that, Lord. Lord, conquer in us whatever remains of our old nature, please. Whatever still panders after the idolatry of this world, Lord, please deal with that and sanctify us through and through that we may truly love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. Please have mercy upon us and forgive us of all our sins. We ask for this in Jesus Christ. Amen.